We've got a huge story to start the week on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We have the recommended punishment for Deshaun Watson, the Browns' star quarterback. We'll be talking about it first. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Tassi. I hope you all enjoyed a pretty spectacular July weekend. Now it's August. It's time to go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get started. What was the recommended punishment for Deshaun Watson after he was accused of abusing a bunch of massage therapists that he had visited before he became Cleveland's quarterback? Laura, this is out first thing this morning. Yes. NFL disciplinary disciplinary officer Sue L. Robinson. She's retired federal judge. She's jointly appointed by the NFL and the NFL Players Association, which is the union. She issued a six-game suspension. And this was after a three-day hearing in June and then post-hearing briefs from both sides that were due on July 12th. She issued no fine. She says Watson must get all of his future massage therapy from the Cleveland Browns directly. And they can appeal, but we already know the union has said they won't and they don't want, obviously, they do not want the NFL to appeal because this is not as bad a sentence as could have been. He could have been suspended for the entire season. This well, is six games. All the After that three-day hearing, all the mm-hmm. signs were that the Browns thought that went well. We don't know what was presented. We don't right. know what evidence is part of this. But you started to get the sense from the Browns that they thought it went really well. And when they came, when the NFL Players Association and Deshaun Watson came out last night and said, we're not going to appeal it, that was a pretty clear sign they were expecting Mm -hmm. something like this. It could have been Mm -hmm. a full season. It could have been, I mean, remember the NFL, the league wanted an indefinite suspension of a minimum of a year. Now it's just over a third of the season. And if they get to the playoffs, it's less than a third of the season. So mm-hmm. very, very. I, I, I wish we knew what it was because right now, you know, we know as Lisa has been pointing out, what sleazeball attorney Tony Busby has put out there. But a whole lot of women, a lot of women, sued him, saying he did very inappropriate things during the massage, very inappropriate things, making them victims, making them feel terrible, and his only response is, "I'm not guilty." But we don't know what we don't know. Correct. We, we don't. We, we will never know what happened in those sessions. We just know a lot of women came forward with very similar experiences that they said happened. It went to a grand jury. There were no charges, but there were 24 civil suits. Now, 23 of those have been settled. One remains because three were settled over the weekend. Um, but you're right. We don't know. I think the original tenor was just all of these women, you have to believe the women. And, but then there was this, you know, what's going to happen to the fan base. And I think we saw over the weekend at the first days that fans were allowed in training camp, he got a huge reception. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Browns gambled here and the story has had long legs and will continue to have long legs, but you're right. We will never know what happened and there's no criminal trial here. All right. So Lisa, Way back from the beginning, as we were hearing from lots of very angry women and people were talking in very condemning tones, you were the one saying, you know, Tony Busby, I know him. This is the kind of thing he does. Be careful here. You were the one that was saying, we, you know, we don't know what happened, but so you, you know, I got to salute you. You were kind of 
foreseeing that this would end this way? Well, two things put me in that frame of mind. One, two Harris County, well, Harris County and Brazoria County in Texas, two grand juries, no build-in. Then you think the Haslam shelled out $230 million, the biggest contract ever in the NFL. You had to know that they knew stuff that we didn't know. And, you know, as I said in earlier podcasts, we have never seen, you know, how these women advertise themselves on Instagram. We can't be naive and think that there aren't massage therapists that offer happy endings or full release massages, which is maybe what he was looking for. So yeah, I just, you know, I, and all other indications of the man, he seems to be a good guy. And I know that doesn't mean anything, but you know, he, he's, he's tried to bond with his teammates, you know, uh, obviously the fans, you know, were happy to see him. So I, I just had my doubts from the very beginning, especially after those no bills. I want to go. I want to caution against going too far in the direction of letting him off the hook here, because we say in our story that in explaining her decision to the parties involved, Robinson determined that Watson's pattern of behavior was egregious, but that he engaged in nonviolent sexual conduct between egregious behavior and nonviolent sexual conduct is a universe of bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say like he's a good guy and he is, should be welcomed with open arms now that this is behind him and he only got a slap on the wrist. This is there. There's so much that could have happened that we're not aware of. And probably, know. you know, I mean. So, so I, I don't, right. don't want to end this conversation well, with that hanging out there. Well, I'm totally with you, Layla. And it's not over. The, the league can still appeal, um, even though Watson will not appeal. And Roger Goodell could ultimately decide. I think the reason we're never going to know is for him to present three days of evidence that puts him in a better light. They, they had to attack the credibility of the women. And the NFL is not going to release anything that is attacking the credibility of the women. And the women weren't there to defend themselves. So it, it's really one of those where all we're going to know is what the upshot is. And let's face it, if he is a sick guy who cannot help himself, He'll do it again. So this will not be the end of the story. Well, and he is going, he is getting therapy. He said that through the Browns organization, he's going to be very limited in what he's allowed to do. Remember the Texans are getting sued as well because they were providing the space for some of these massages to happen. And- they settled. No, I right. think they yeah, settled. They did. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but I think they were, they were sued over this. So I think the Browns are a lot more aware of what's going on, but can we just put this in comparison sake for, so six games, and the last Browns player to be suspended under this personal conduct policy was Miles Garrett, who also missed the first, sorry, final six games of 2019. He removed Steelers quarterback Mason Rudolph's helmet during an exchange on the field and struck him in the head. Um, ben Roethlisberger was suspended six games in 2010 after a 20-year-old college student accused him of sexually assaulting her. No, that was reduced right. to four. Right, reduced to four, but he was suspended yeah. originally okay. for six. So. so we got to move on. So there's a lot of content that'll be on cleveland.com today. The The sports team here has been ready for this. And so check on cleveland.com for lots of updates about what is moving on with this. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County government kept secret a 2014 report that prescribed a future for the county jail. And now that we finally have a heavily redacted copy, we know that Armin Budish could have probably saved us hundreds of millions of dollars if he had followed what the study prescribed. He didn't. Layla, what's in this report? 
Well, the, the report, which was completed eight years ago, recommended making $239 million worth of capital repairs to that facility to extend its useful life through 2039, Caitlin tells us. At, at minimum, they said the building needed a new roof, new HVAC system, new windows, new elevators, new, new technology, better fire protection, and a bunch of modifications to make it more accessible to persons with disabilities. But what it didn't really contemplate is whether it was worth it to renovate that building versus build a new one, which is the debate that's raging today. And it didn't consider how to fix any of the conditions that have led to, you know, really such a poor quality of life for inmates. And and missing from the report were recommendations for how to address crowding or how to comply with state standards for cell sizes or natural lighting. It just says, if you want to extend the life of this building, here's how you do it. And why this is relevant today is that since that report was released, officials, including Budish, have pointed to it repeatedly as confirmation that it would be too expensive, too impractical to renovate the jail and, and the county needs to build new elsewhere. But A, doesn't seem that they did much of anything to upkeep, to do any of the upkeep that was prescribed in the report nearly a decade ago. And B, the study's really outdated now, and it was really limited in scope. So now County Prosecutor Michael Malley and Common Pleas Court Administrative Judge Brendan Sheehan are putting $150,000 from their own uh, budgets uh, into another company to update that report and explain what it might take to rehabilitate the jail today for real. And they've both been leaning in favor of renovation to keep the jail connected with their offices. So... I'm tempted, Layla, to 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 go after them for for redacting more than half this report because yeah, they, they, I, <laughs> I just don't buy that it's a security. And if we get it before a special master at the Court of Claims, I bet we'd see a lot more of it. I just don't know if it's going to be that educational. Here, here's the thing that I think is is important to know today. And congratulations to Caitlin for shaking this thing loose and taking the time to really analyze it. But Arma Budish came into office in eight, seven and a half years ago, and this report was pretty fresh, right? And he could have created a task force and said, look, if we can keep this thing going for another 15 years or 20 years, we'll have money to build a new one. We have the time to do it right. Let's think it through. We'll be out of debt and, and we can really do this right. And he didn't. He didn't do much at all except say, hey, let's turn the jail into a profit center and make money on it. And then we had deaths and put blood on his hands. But he didn't do anything. And then Friday, he put out a release saying they are moving to sign a contract to buy land for the jail and permanently extend mm -hmm. the sales tax to pay for it. Right. The date of which would be sometime in mid-October. So 10 weeks, 10 weeks before the next administration comes in, Armin Budish is saying, we have to move fast to lock this thing down. The guy is the most venal leader we've ever seen. He's trying to handcuff the next administration. And when he says haste is of the essence, it's complete hypocrisy because he sat on his hands these last eight years and didn't do anything. I cannot argue with you on any of those points. And and frankly, yeah, the, the monetization of that jail operation is uh, really set in motion a series of events that has led us to a very, very awful set of circumstances that we're still dealing with the fallout of today. I, it's so wrong to do this to, to sign this big contract, they're trying to get their contractor paid, to get all this done 
with weeks to go before the next administration comes in. I hope somebody files a lawsuit or something to gum it up because my bet is a Cuyahoga County judge would stop their, the, the proceeding and gum it up until Armin Budish is gone and the next ones can come in. It, they don't even have the toxicity study yet, but they're lining up to get this done in an all-fired rush. And the only reason they're doing it is to stick it to Chris Ronane or Lee Weingart who's coming in next. And it's one of the, the legacy of, of Armin Budish just gets worse and worse and worse. And this is his final venal act. And again, if he cared about the jail, he would have acted on this report. It was a great story by, by Caitlin. It was. And you would think that they would at least wait for that toxicity study, at least wait for this updated facilities report to create the illusion of prudence Right. Yeah, but that's not that's not what it's about. I mean, we've done we've demonstrated through stories we've done and documents that he operates through venality. And this is it. He's going to. And the thing is, it won't work. It, whoever wins, they don't have to spend the money. They can they can sell the site, lose some some millions and blame it on Armand Budish for buying a site that should have never been bought. So it's not even going to work. And whoever takes care of it will put the blame where it belongs, but they're racing ahead. I couldn't believe when he when he put into his, the quote from him in the release about how speed is of the essence here. It's like, well, we got a story coming Sunday. It shows it's never been of the essence for you. It's today in Ohio. Some people are still fighting to restore Horseshoe Lake in Shaker Heights, which seems more and more like tilting at windmills. The Northeast Ohio Sewer District has other ideas for the land where the lake was. And our columnist, Steve Litt, likes what he's hearing. Lisa, what's the plan? And as somebody who grew up in Shaker Heights and spent a lot of time at Horseshoe Lake, I have to agree with Stephen Litt. I think that, you know, what the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is planning is maybe even better. I know people hate to lose the lake, but they might be gaining something even better in the process. So what's going to happen is, first of all, they're emphasizing landscape architecture. So the lead guy on this planning team for the NEO Sewer District has hired Stinson an architecture firm, which is from Massachusetts, and he's going to, the, the fellow's name is Matt Langan. He's going to have a lead role, and he's been working with civil engineers and, and archaeologists and others. Matt Langan, uh, for his previous firm, he did the Nord Family Greenway here in Cleveland in 2018, and the University Circle Smith Family Greenway in 2020, which was right around the museum. So basically, they want to look at this not only as a flood control project, but as a landscape project, which I think is very interesting. Uh, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District CEO, Kyle Dreyfus-Wells, says this is a unique project and it requires a unique approach. So we know that 170-year-old dam is failing. The lake was drained by ODNR back in 2019 because they were worried that the, that the dam would fail. So, But the entire area is 60 acres. And uh, Dreyfus Wells said they're going to look at the entire 60 acres when they do their planning. And the public is definitely invited. They're going to kick off the pre-planning process. This is not designs that we're looking at. They're looking for design ideas. So an eight-month, $1.5 million planning phase kicks off August 25th with a virtual public forum from 6 to 7.30 p.m. That will be followed by an open house on August 27th at Horseshoe Lake Park. They'll be setting up tents east of Lee Road and, you know, taking uh, 
suggestions and showing ideas to people who are in the area. And they hope to wrap up this whole process in mid-2024, and they hope to start removing the dam in 2025. But that hasn't really stopped the Friends of Horseshoe Lake. Um, We're not sure if they're going to sue. We asked their attorney... um, I can't find his name. Um, Anthony Coyne. He's with the uh, with the Friends of Horseshoe Lake, and they asked. We asked him, "Is he going to sue?" And he says, "I don't know, but they should consider alternatives." I don't know what the grounds for the lawsuit would be. You know what? What struck me after I read this was before you had a big lake that you could walk around, and it wasn't all that inviting. So the people that lived on the edge loved looking out on the lake, but from a community participation standpoint. It wasn't all that much more than a place to take a walk. If you take 60 acres, though, with a stream running through the mm-hmm. center of it and really develop it for community use, the sky is the limit on what that could be. Imagine a gathering place where lots of people could ga- get together. I, it, it's kind of exciting what they're contemplating here. It, it really is. And I can't wait to see, you know, what comes out of this pre-planning process. I mean, 60 acres, you know, there's a lot you can do with that. And they do have to deal with Doan Brook. I mean, Doan Brook has been a problem for decades, you know, and they've never really fixed that problem. And maybe the dam was part of the problem. Well, the uh, one disturbing thing was is that the sewer authority says they'll take care of the brook and, and the waterway, but they can't build a park. Oh, that correct. that would have to come from nonprofit dollars. But just envisioning what that could be sounds pretty special. So I, I'm sure Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights are very engaged communities, and a, a lot of people I'm sure will participate, <laughs> including those that keep saying "nana nana boo boo." We want our lake back. We'll have to see. It's today in Ohio. With Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb proposing to use tax dollars to transport city residents to other states for abortions, we wondered how far the idea strays from the traditional uses of taxes. Reporter Courtney Astoffi went deep on this one, Leila Tassi, and came back with some very interesting comparisons. Yeah, well, you heard from a lot of readers on subtext who said that they thought this might have been a stretch of, of tax dollars. And it's a very polarizing and interesting debate, to be sure. But in the past couple of weeks, yeah, Courtney spoke to many civics experts who said that actually this program is really in keeping with the mission of city government. And it's a natural extension of the role that cities play as policy innovators who are on the ground level. They're really attuned to the day-to-day realities of their constituents. So in Ohio, as it has been in the case in many states for some time now, we've seen this lopsided distribution of power between Democrats concentrated in urban areas and rural Republicans. And you add gerrymandering to the mix, you end up with this, what experts in, story, in, in Courtney's story have referred to as the trifecta, where the governor's office and both legislative bodies are controlled by Republicans. Once that happens, we see all the super conservative policy, as we have in Ohio, that doesn't align with the values of voters in strongly Democratic-leaning urban areas like Cleveland, and it falls to the local leaders like Justin Bibb to stand up for those value systems. And that's what we're seeing him do with this abortion travel policy. So none of the experts who spoke to Courtney could think of a past policy in, in the city that quite looks like this one. But that didn't really, I mean, that doesn't mean it, it's a total departure from past practice. You know, they they also, they pointed to parallels in a variety of existing or past city programs that in, that were intended to help with personal needs. Like Aisha Bell Hardaway, the co-director of the Social Justice Institute at Case Western Reserve University, pointed to municipal programs that have long existed to take seniors to and from medical appointments. 
I thought that was a perfect comparison. We've been searching for that kind of comparison for weeks now. She made the point that the abortion travel program just feels substantively substantively different from that because abortion falls into this category of healthcare that has become so politicized, so controversial, but we're still talking about healthcare here. And so those two things, shuttling seniors to their their medical appointments and taking people to their abortion appointments are so similar. You could also look at the city's funding of a needle exchange program that was viewed as really controversial under former Mayor Mike White, or birth control funded by city health clinics in the 60s or 70s. These are ways that the city helped people meet their needs when the state was trying to stand in the way of them. But Courtney sources also pointed to the legalization of same-sex marriage. Before that happened, some cities allowed domestic partnerships. Cleveland was among them, an example of local governments becoming responsive to the realities of people's lives and needs when state and federal governments just wouldn't do that. So Courtney did right. such a great job with this story. I, I want to go in two directions here. The first is that the, all of them made clear that there's no law against this now. But they all, but clearly the Ohio legislature is filled with wingnuts. They could very quickly pass a bill that says cities can't do this. But here's the thing. Unlike other home rule issues that are that that limit what the city can do about guns or something, you know, Cleveland had gun laws so that if if somebody did something with a gun that the city didn't like, they wanted to criminalize it. And the state said, you can't do that. Well, that's an individual right. So there's nothing the city can do. But if the legislature said cities can't do this, what's to stop the city from doing it anyway? I don't know. Who's going to prosecute them, right? It's a county prosecutor's not going to. That's right. You would, ha- you would have an audit every year in which the state auditor says, oh, oh there, that's a recovery. You got to pay the $100,000 back and everybody would ignore it. I I would not be surprised because this is such a bold move. If Justin Bibb didn't say, I don't care what state lies, there's nothing you can do about it. We're paying for this. Wouldn't that be interesting? It would be very interesting. And uh, if Courtney's listening, maybe that's another story to look at. (laughs) Here's the other thing. And and I'd be interested to hear from you all on this. You know, I get a lot of mail from readers, both conservative and liberal. Got a lot this weekend because I wrote a column about the outrage that's in the land. And what, what I know from reading all of this is both sides equally view each other with disdain and distrust. And this is one of those issues that progressives see is absolutely the right thing to do. Conservatives see is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And it, and it increases our divide. And I worry about that because it, the polarization of Ohio gets worse and worse and worse when things like this are passed. So what is your question? I, I'm saying, <laughs> sh- should that be a factor in the decision? Should we be thinking... We're we're never going to come together as a nation if we don't start having more empathy for what others think. And we don't. You know, it was fascinating. I wrote this column because we ran a comic about a political cartoon in which Joe Biden's looking at his 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 covid test and says it lasts some positive results. 
And some guy to Biden supporter wrote me a nasty note saying, you know, who, I hope the editor who approved this is going to get fired. By the way, I didn't say it in the column. I approve that. So he wanted me to be fired. Right. So so I wrote a column saying, my God, the outrage we're getting on minor little things like cartoons enough, but we're being exhorted to outrage all over the place. Laura had suggested that I shouldn't ignore the fact that there are legitimate reasons for outrage. So I threw a few of those in there, the abortion debate and the, the gerrymandering. And what's amazing is there were several conservatives that wrote and said, of course, your examples are about conservatives. It proves you're a liberal ignoring the fact that I had raked the Biden supporter over the coals for being outraged over the cartoon. They're blind. They couldn't see it. They're mm -hmm. looking for reasons to be offended. Mm -hmm. This is an example. You know, a lot of people think tuition loan forgiveness is a great idea, but conservatives think it's a terrible idea. They see it as socialism. And so the question becomes, do you do those things if they continue to divide? Paying for women to go to other states for, for, with tax money to get abortions is a divisive issue. Well, here's, here's, Should that be considered? Here's my concern, and I think I talked about this when we discussed this last week, is that you're giving your personal health information to the city of Cleveland because they're going to have to get at least some information about you to, in order to transport you to an abortion clinic. So you've got the city controlling private information and there are already states that are trying to, you know, find that information and, you know, find out which women are pregnant, which women are seeking abortions and use that against them. That's what scares me. Well, and there's also what Layla has pointed out. The city is completely incapable of doing this program <laughs> because yeah, right. it requires speed. But I'm getting more at the idea. Courtney has shown that this is very likely a proper use of city money, that, that, that this is, they're helping residents. We elected a guy because we wanted bold decisions. I mean, everything that we've talked about applies, but. It, it is divisive. So Laura, you, you have waited. Do you in. not wait? Do you not do it because it's divisive? Is that what you're saying? I mean, what if what if we go? Let's go back to the 60s or 70s. Do you not fund birth control because it's divisive? Do you not do the needle exchange program because it's divisive? Because no, there are I, people offended by it. What I'm suggesting is we are more polarized than ever before, largely because of the Tucker Carlsons of the world that are trying to get us to be polarized. Should that be a factor in this conversation? Well, sure, it should be a factor, but it shouldn't be a factor on just one side, right? Like if you can get Matt Huffman in the room and say, look, a lot of what you're doing is really divisive. I really think you should tone that down. Then sure. But I think that <laughs> takes both sides. Yeah. Like why why is it left to the city of Cleveland to tone down its uh, its program trying to solve a problem, trying to trying to, to stem a service gap here? Um, why are they the ones who have to compromise that in order to tone down the, the div, div, you know, to, to solve the division problem? We don't see any kind of, of uh, solution coming from, from the other side of that, you know. Um, yeah, well, this is this is more evidence of the polarization. Very interesting points. Good conversation. <laughs> We're almost out of time. It's today in Ohio. One more. Lisa, has Columbia Gas come up with a winning strategy to stop nonprofits from opposing the utility when it seeks big rate increases? This is an eye on Ohio story, the nonprofit a journalism outfit, and it's really fascinating what they dug into. Yeah, it's quite eye-opening. And of course, money is at the root of all this. At a June 9th hearing on a 220 
$212 million rate hike by Columbia Gas. They received praise from several nonprofits because uh, they got charitable contributions from Columbia. And they also were glad that Columbia was lenient in client disconnections. So groups like the United Way of Central Ohio, the Life Care Alliance, the Children's Hunger Alliance, all went to that hearing and said, we support you know, Columbia Gas and everything they do in the community. Now, uh, but Ohio Consumers Council spokeswoman Marilee M. says charity testimony is an awkward and unhelpful way for consumers. It gives the appearance that utility charitable giving is connected to influence. She calls it strategic philanthropy. So, and the nonprofits during this hearing testified about getting financial gifts from Columbia and their parent company and about Columbia employees volunteering to help these various nonprofit uh, case case causes. Um, Columbia contributor contributions come from NYSource Charitable Foundation. It's a separate group. They gave $7.5 million to various charities in 2020, according to an IRS filing. So this just doesn't look right. I mean, yeah, you, you gave us money. We're so happy. So we're going to, you know, go for your rate increase, which might affect some of their very clients. It's like they're buying them off. You know, it's look, we had a similar thing involving Deshaun Watson, if you recall. We had sought comment from the Rape Crisis Center, which is supported by the Browns, and we got very little uh, from them about it, which mm. which we were surprised at. So is that the strategy? Nonprofits that don't want anybody to oppose them, just give them money and then they they become your allies and and residents get stuck. I mean, getting hearing from a lot of residents about big utility increases and you would think people that represent them would be in there fighting for them and they're not. Yeah. And this is going to be, you know, 1.4 million Ohioans are customers of Columbia Gas. And this rate hike would go from uh, $16.75 a month to $46.31 a month if this is approved. Yeah, it's uh, it, really good work by Ion Ohio. It's a, a story that I don't think any of us had heard of. Uh, check it out. It's on cleveland.com. I think it ran in print too, right, Laura? Did it run today? Yep, today. Yeah, it's in the plane dealer today. All right, we got more stuff to talk about. We're not going to get to it. It's today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Mm-hmm.